0: from the Derek Duval Productions Bunker, it's Derek Duvall!
1: Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello! Hi, everybody. Hey, thank you. Wow, oh, thank you, guys. Thank you. Please sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duval Show. We are back with another journey into the lives of extraordinary people. Before we get into the episode, I want to give a huge shout-out to my lovely guest, From the previous episode, Leigh Langston. Her episode was fantastic and incredibly well-received. I am looking forward to fulfilling my promise to her of a tribute to the music of Michael Jackson sometime in the future. So welcome to episode 78. We've got a very interesting episode for you today. Now, if any of you know me, you know that Jaws is 1,000% my all-time favorite film, and I consider it to be easily the greatest film ever made. No one will ever change my mind on that one. However, the rule of Hollywood is if one film makes more money than God, a sequel is pretty much a foregone conclusion, and Jaws was not exempt to that. Jaws 2 is considered the only valid sequel to the franchise, and that brings us to today's special guest. We have on the show the author of the blockbuster book, Jaws 2, The Making of the Hollywood Sequel. Michael A. Smith is with us. He is going to be talking about the massive collaboration it took to create a book of this kind, his thoughts on the trouble production and he tackles an urban myth about one of the film's most brutal shark attacks. So let's go ahead and just get him on out here. Duval Nation, please rise to your feet and welcome to the show all the way from Lee Summit, Missouri, acclaimed film critic and author, Michael A. Smith. <laughs> Mike, hello. Welcome to the Derek Duval Show. How has your day been so far?
2: Uh, not too bad. Not too bad. Glad we finally got to connect.
1: Yeah, I know. It took a lot of stars to line to make this happen, so thank you. Okay, so before we get started, I gotta know right off the bat, how was SharkCon 7?
2: SharkCon was awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Had a good time, met a lot of fans, sold a lot of books, got to uh, spend the weekend hobnobbing, uh, sitting next to Richard Dreyfus and uh, got to host his Q&A, and he was uh, running behind with a with a meet and greet he was doing, so I had to entertain the the people that showed up for the special screening. So I was just running back and forth uh, with a microphone, like uh, Monty Hall on Let's Make a Deal.
1: Is that like that scene in Winsville too, where Garth had to entertain a hostile crowd? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but it was just
2: people just peppering peppering me with jaws questions, and I think I answered them all, so
1: they were happy. Oh, that's awesome, Mike. I wish I could have been there to see it. Okay, so I officially start my interviews with the same question, and that is, how has it been for you to navigate the COVID-19 pandemic?
2: Well, I tell you, it's been a a challenge in a way. Uh, uh, My wife was able to work from home. My job, I have uh, two departments that I oversee. I was given the okay to work from home, but both of my departments, they have to come in every day and they work outside. And I just couldn't in good conscience say, hey, make sure you guys come in every day yeah. and, and not be there. So I've I've been at the office since all this started. My wife and I, we both had COVID. We got it back in November. And the only time we went out of the house was to go grocery shopping. and We wore masks and everything, but we both still got it. Um, we've been vaccinated. And um, like I said, it was kind of... Um, Kind of touch and go. I wasn't sure if, if uh, Con would go on because of everything going on down in Florida, uh, but it did. And hats off to uh, Spencer Stewart, who is the uh, creator and promoter down there. Uh, he made sure that everybody was safe. And I don't think there's going to be any issue of people meeting other people as far as uh, catching anything. But like I said, I met, you know, I had hand sanitizer
1: and a mask on when I was meeting people. So. Knock on wood, I'm, I'm healthy. But the two of you did make a full recovery, correct? Yes. Awesome. Okay, so every journey has a beginning. Where were you born? What was it like to grow up there?
2: Well, I am. A re- I was born in Cleveland, moved around the country a lot. My dad worked for the newspapers, so he worked for the plane dealer in Cleveland, the Blade in Toledo, the Seattle P.I. in Seattle, the Chicago. Uh, he worked for the Tribune. And then he kind of got burned out on the on the newspaper business, and uh, went to work construction. We moved to Tampa when I was 14, and uh, he started his own construction company. Went from there, joined the service been in Germany, been, lived in Baltimore, lived in Kansas, now I live in Missouri. Uh, I attended HB Plant High School in uh, Tampa, and I attended the
1: University of Maryland. Interesting. What was your major? Theater, dramatic arts. Nice. Okay, so during our research for this interview, we uncovered that you are quite an accomplished film critic. What got you into that, and how long did it take for you to finally get established in that field?
2: I started in high school, writing for the school newspaper. A lot of us joined the, the newspaper staff at school um, because you had that was like a class, uh, and it was always a class right before lunch. So you would say, oh, we're going to go out and try to sell ads. And then you'd go off campus for lunch because back then you couldn't, you couldn't leave. You couldn't leave school grounds. So I started writing film, little film biz, film reviews. Uh, Steve Otto, who was the film critic for the Tampa Times, he had gone to my high school. And uh, he invited me one day to a press junket in um, 1976, December of 76, for a little film that he didn't know much about called Rocky. And, um, yeah, <laughs> so, um, got to see that, got to, uh, uh, Sloan tell you Shire were there. So was really nice. He gave me a, I still have it. I have a, he gave me a little autographed picture of him that said, uh, may your dreams come true sly. Nice. Uh, and so far they have.
1: So before his patented keep punching phrase. Yes.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, uh, Kind of dabbled, you know, big film buff. Uh, I, I did theater, uh, movie marketing for 20 years. So I was always kind of around movies and uh, promotions. And then when I uh, moved here to Kansas, my son was playing Little League Baseball. And I was one of the coaches, and I would write up the game. What happened? Because the kids like to see their name in the paper. And they were pretty much publishing what I wrote word for word, there was no editing. And uh, the editor came to a game once and I told him, I said, you know, what, you guys need a film critic. And he said, well, the job is yours. So uh, 1999, I began uh, writing uh, uh, film reviews every week for the Leavenworth Times in Leavenworth, Kansas. Um, That got me uh, admission into the Kansas City Film Critics Circle, of which I'm still a member. Friend of mine down in Tampa started a website called Craze Fanboy. So I was able to do reviews and then some commentary. And then in 2010, my friend Mike Gencarelli and I started a site called, originally it was called moviemikes.com where we concentrated solely on films. We are both friendly with uh, Greg Nicotero uh, from The Walking Dead. Yeah. And Greg uh, allowed us, uh, got us access. So we did a lot of interviews uh, before The Walking Dead came out, and that really jump started the site. So we went from movie mics to media mics. So now we we cover it all. It's it's nice to get uh, recognition. I'm on a couple uh, a couple DVD cases. No, I've I, got I, reviews got
1: reviews on there and um, little prose passages.
2: Yes, just yeah. like you know yeah. must see or something like that. You know, no. usually I try not to write like I'm writing to get on a DVD package, but every now and then. You know, so I don't say it's the best film of the year or the funniest movie I'll ever see, anything like that. But every now and then I'll I'll find a, you know, I'll write something that the studio deems quote
1: worthy and they'll throw it in an ad or throw it on a box. That's really cool, Mike. So I wrote film reviews for my shift's newspaper once, but nothing in the caliber of what you do. Okay, so moving on, I want to talk about your hit book, Jaws 2, The Making of a Hollywood Sequel. Now, I have had Carl Gottlieb on my show for episode 35, and any Jaws fan worth his or her salt knows that he practically wrote the Bible for filmmaking with the Jaws log. What inspired you to take on writing about a sequel to what is arguably the greatest film of all time?
2: I have uh, a friend, actually two friends, Matt Taylor and Jim Beller. In 2005, it came to uh, our cabin at Jaws Fest, the first Jaws Fest. A group of us rented the cabin that Steven Spielberg lived in during the filming. so Jim came over and he was telling me he had this idea. He wanted to do a book on the making of Jaws, but told from the people that were there, their eyes. Mm-hmm. And in 2011, he and Matt uh, released a book called um, Mem- Memories from Martha's Vineyard, a beautiful book. So they had the release party on Martha's Vineyard, uh, 4th of July weekend of 2011. And I was uh, talking to Matt and Jim with my friend, uh, Lou Pizzano. Uh, He's since passed. And I asked him, I said, so what's next? And he and Matt looked at each other and they said, no, this one had been pretty exhaustive to write. And they didn't write anymore. They didn't want to write it anymore. And um, Jim said, well, you guys write. You should do it. So uh, we talked about it, Lou and I and uh, we were on Main Street in Edgartown. We came upon Tom Dunlop, uh, who is Timmy in Jaws 2, Mm -hmm. and also is an accomplished author. And we kind of told him, hey, we're thinking about doing this Jaws 2 book. And he laughed and he was like, nobody wants to read a book about Jaws 2. And I, I I was like, Tom, no, I mean, you've got, you know, you got, you got all kinds of Hollywood you know, backstory, you got a director that was fired. You've got, you know, different people in the cast coming in and out. And he thought about it. And he said, well, maybe if you do like an e-book, you know, maybe that would work. And I said, no, no, a real book. Mm-hmm. And he saw we were serious. And he said, well, I tell you what, if you guys really do this seriously, and I think you're taking it seriously, I'll give you any help that I can.
1: How long did the research take? And in your opinion, who was the hardest interview to get?
2: I tell you, thank God for the internet. I, you know, I read these biographies, you know, back from the fifties and sixties, and like, "How did you even find these people?" But thank goodness for uh, IMDb Pro.
1: Okay, I have to stop you for a quick second. See, Mrs. Duvall, IMDb Pro is totally worth the expense. I mean, look what it did for Mike here. Sorry, Mike, continue.
2: <laughs> the only person that I could not get that that is in the opening credits. Uh, that was still alive was John Williams. And I never got a no from his camp, but he was always busy because the man just works nonstop. Yeah. And the only interview um, that I didn't get, that I reached out for was uh, Sarah Holcomb, uh, probably best remembered as uh, Tom Holse's date in Animal House,
1: hmm.
2: or he takes to the toga party. For uh, Michael O'Keefe's uh, girlfriend in Caddyshack, the waitress with the Irish accent, yeah, um, she had been cast in the film. Uh, she'd been fired, but she had a lot of personal issues in Hollywood because of the lifestyle. So she left Hollywood. She left everything behind. Um, I did get a hold of her, her brother, who is a musician, and he kind of, you know, was kind of a go-between for us and Sarah, but she very, very politely um, declined. And I said, hey, I understand. When the book came out, David sent a very, very nice letter uh, thanking us for the way we portrayed Sarah and, you know, how we described, you know, very politely, you know, she didn't want to talk to us. That's fine, we're fine with that. So that was probably the, the one that I really would like to hear just because, you know, she was instrumental in the film. I think the best interview was uh, John Hancock, who was the original director who was uh, later fired. And um, I went to his farm up in in Indiana uh, with his wife, Dorothy Tristan, who was the co-screenwriter with Howard Sackler at the time. And um, they were so gracious. And uh, I just remember sitting at the kitchen table and Dorothy's bringing me cookies. And, you know, and I thought, You know, later, and I I thanked him and I reminisced in the book when I wrote about it how how gracious of them to invite me into their home and talk about a period in their life that has to be painful. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, this he was, you know, he was set to direct the sequel to the most popular film ever made. And he said, you know, and then he was fired. And then he says that it did affect his career. He still worked, he did a couple of of great films afterwards he does a lot of television um he still writes uh, a screenplay he submitted just one uh film festival for best screenplay out in la but i think that was the best interview because you, know, you always hear you know rumors this happened this happened and he was able to say well this is what happened this is why i think it, it happened so
1: no ndas or anything like that right So, the book is fully illustrated with some stunning photos, including a treasure trove of pictures that have never been seen before by the public. How long did it take you to acquire them, and where did the majority of them come from?
2: Uh, I went down to Destin, Florida. And before I went down there, I I talked to somebody on the newspaper, and they kind of did a little story on me. I received two phone calls uh, one from a gentleman named uh, Tom Rice, who. Owns the Magnolia Diner found in Fort Walton Beach. He was friends with the gentleman who was the projectionist at the local theater. Mm-hmm. And he had, uh, when he passed, uh, he found uh, a notebook, uh, a notebook full of photos that he had taken on the set. The yeah. other was Bobby Chisarek, whose father uh, was a welder mm-hmm. on the set. And he had some great pictures, in, including. Uh, there's a deleted scene uh, where Billy Van Zandt's character is is killed, mm-hmm. and um, there's a there's like one picture on the internet of the shark kind of creeping up on him on a surfboard. Yeah, but they filmed it, but they never used it because they thought it was too violent. They wanted PG uh, R rating, mm-hmm. but he had other pictures that he had taken. He was on the set that day. It went from there to uh, contacting uh, people that you know. Uh, somebody's mother wrote me and said, "Well, my son is a, was an extra. Uh, he lives in Colorado, so I went up there and met him. And he had pictures. Mm-hmm. And then everybody that I interviewed, the cast and crew, all of them had pictures that they took with their with their instamatics back then. And so that was really, I mean, that's the reason why a lot of the pictures were were really not be never before seen by fans because they were, you know, sitting in somebody's dresser drawer in a envelope from photo mat because, you know, you showed it to the family and that was it.
1: You just briefly mentioned that deleted scene. And with any film, there are scenes that have been removed for a myriad of reasons. Are there any that stand out to you the most?
2: Um, when I when I researched the film, I was uh, I had to go out to UCLA and they have this little secret, double secret, secret library that it's like the opening of Get Smart. You have to walk through all these different doors and they close behind you. And they had a copy of Howard Sackler uh, and Dorothy Tristan's uh, original script, and it was much darker, and it was much, uh, you know, Brody is slowly going into dementia because of everything going on, and um, you know, it, it was it was a great read. One thing I didn't understand when they fired John Hancock was that was the script you approved. He was making the movie you wanted him you know he thought you wanted him to make but they decided they wanted more you know i mean john Hanna where amity was just you know desolate and nobody was there and a lot of dark colors and um they decided uh, when they brought carl back um carl said his inspiration was thinking back when he was a kid when on saturday night everybody would get in their car and drive up and down the right up and down the road you figured out an island, everybody would get in their boats and do the same thing. So, you know, they added more kids and, and a little more a little more lightness. Obviously, uh as you know Schwarz, who took over the film, you know, made it a little of a brighter picture.
1: Okay, Duval Nation, we're gonna go ahead and take a small break, but we were right back with the conclusion of this amazing interview. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink, take some super nice long, deep breaths, you know, Cluzo style.
0: Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with
2: the bad air, in with the
1: good. Pay attention to two friends of the show, and we will be right back. Okay, Jason, test of our friendship. Which is better, Van Halen or Van Hagar?
0: Man, honestly, I think Van Hagar has better music. Oh no, though. no, 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 it's Van Halen. You're wrong. <laughs> what about <laughs> Michael Jackson's Bad album versus Michael Jackson's Thriller album? Thriller, obviously, bestseller ever. No, no. See, people trick themselves into believing that it's actually bad. <laughs> okay, Trading Places versus Coming to America. Trading Places is the funnier movie out of this No, Coming to America is the funniest movie of all time. <laughs> so, if you find yourself backing one of us or the other of us, you need to be listening to the Shirley. You Can't Be Serious podcast. That's right. We have a friendly discussion. Dee and I are best buddies and we take a deep dive and look at the behind the scenes stuff, the history and the fun facts of all these wonderful movies and music from our youth. It's really just an opportunity for us to geek out about the things that we really loved growing up. For example, do you know the actor that was in Star Wars,
1: Batman 89 and Raiders of the Lost
0: Ark? Yeah, sure. It's Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford wasn't in Batman. Oh yeah, Billy D. Williams.
1: Billy D. Williams was not in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Who was it? Well, you've got to tune in to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast when we discuss Raiders of the Lost Ark versus Back to the Future to find out the answer. Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things?
0: Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time.
1: Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts! Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education, part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this.
0: Hi, my name is Ryan, and I'm one of the hosts of Going the Distance, the Rocky Series podcast. What do we do on that podcast? Well, as you can imagine, we cover the Rocky franchise. The most incredible franchise ever. That's right. Okay, there's other great franchises, but this is just a personal favorite of mine. It's what got me into podcasting to begin with. If you are a Sylvester Stallone fan and a Rocky Balboa fan, then this podcast is for you. We cover every movie in detail. We're currently just wrapping up Season 6, finishing our coverage of Rocky Balboa, the sixth film in the franchise, and we're about to go to the Creed Films. Join us on every podcast platform. We hope to see you there. Ding, ding. Janae
1: Sergio, arriving. Hello, everyone. This is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero, in these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode seventy-eight of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back into the show with the conclusion of our interview with film critic and author of the book, Jaws 2 The Making of the Hollywood Sequel, Michael A. Smith. You touch on the darkness of the original draft, and while we all universally agree that Jaws 2 is the only good sequel to the film, there were hundreds of missed opportunities, and if you really sit down and think about it, the last act of the first Jaws film, Chief Brody saw some absolutely f***ed up things that would mess with any mortal man, And to cap it all off, he engaged in what some consider to be the best last stand in motion picture history. If you really sit down and think about it, what does that do to a person, including, you know, PTSD, from seeing a man literally eaten five yards from you, your own phobia of drowning whilst the orca is sinking beneath your feet, and then aiming for an eight-inch air tank? I mean, yeah, huge missed opportunities to delve into the pathology of someone who had to endure that horror show.
2: Well, it's just like, you know, when, when I talked to Joe Alves, who was a production designer and um, associate producer, and he had designed the shark for Jaws, he said where Jaws was just like a picture they made, everybody had wanted something to do with Jaws too. yeah. So there were a million ideas, and why don't we do this, and why don't we do that? And it's very similar it's, to what happened to Spielberg in on 1941, um, where, you know, so-and-so would bring a, a friend of the, you know, john candy to the set and they say why can you write a part for john so they kept you know making it bigger and bigger and as as it went the original story went away so i think the whole not wanting an r rating and um i think they just thought it would be depressing i guess and you know roy roy didn't want to be there i mean i I give him credit because he still gives a great performance roy was there under duress because when he finished Jaws, he was the only one of the three stars. Uh, he was given a three picture deal afterwards. The idea being anytime, I guess, you got a film that's they usually gives somebody in the cast uh, a couple extra films to do. So, in case there's a sequel, you've already got them under contract. Right. They you don't have to go back and their asking price goes up. So, um, Roy was slated to be uh, in The Deer Hunter. Uh, the part that uh, uh, Robert De Niro played, uh, eventually. And uh, during pre-production, they changed the script up where instead of De Niro's character, Michael stayed behind in Vietnam and during all the stuff that uh, Nick went through, the Christopher Walton character, Nick stayed behind. So Roy quit, um, and um, Universal had him over a barrel, so they kept offering him really horrible movies until finally they said here, do Jaws two, you owe us two movies, do Jaws two, we'll counter his two movies,
1: you're out of your contract. You touched on Roy Scheider wanting to be a million miles away from that production, but I wanna know is what did you think of his actual performance in Jaws two?
2: Oh, I think it's 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 very, very, very nuanced because he has he has so many different emotions he has to go through. You know, first, you know, he's Just kind of like the the lazy sheriff, everything's fine, or the lazy police chief. And then maybe there's a shard. Nobody believes him, so he's dealing with that paranoia. Uh, He's dealing with his son. His son is now a teenager, running with the pack. And then, of course, uh, eventually when he's proven right, he could be very indignant, but he still has that compassion for everybody around him. And, um, of course, the fact that, you know, his sons are out on the water with the shark is a good good way to uh, get him in action. But I always thought that, um, especially knowing what I know now about how he didn't want to be there and how he was very acrimonious on the set and, you know, how he had a a fist fight with Geno that ended up with uh, Verna Fields having to sit on him while David Brown wrestled Geno to the ground. I think he, he, he gave a very good very good performance, very strong.
1: The character of Mike Brody has been put through the ringer of all the Jaws films, but the one chief scene in Jaws 2 where Mike Brody is unconscious and his friends have to rescue him before the great white eats him is incredibly suspenseful. I can't imagine seeing that in person in theater for the first time.
2: Oh, yeah. I can remember sitting at the, the Britain Plaza down in Tampa in the middle of the 900 seat with a 900-seat theater with 899 people around me and all. You know, screaming and screaming in horror. And um, a lot of that was real. Tom Dunlop, uh, who played Timmy, and we talked about him earlier, he's one of the people that hoist Mike out of the water. And he said that what you don't see or what you don't know is that when the shark came up along the boat, it snapped a wire that was holding the mast up. Mm -hmm. And that, that wire flew past his head. I mean, if it had hit him, it had killed him. Right. So there's a lot of, you know, the, the terror is real in that.
1: So definitely a one-shot take.
2: Oh, yeah. And I, I definitely think if it didn't have the word Jaws in the title,
1: mm-hmm.
2: I think it would be much better received.
1: So when I found out you were coming on the show, I reached out to a few fan pages and a few Reddit pages, and I asked them to submit questions to ask you, and I chose the most intelligent of them. If it's okay, I'm going to ask you a few of them. Sure. The first question is a long one, but here goes. The Jaws franchise is famous for some of the most gruesome deaths in film history. The death of Quint ranks right up there for the terror scale. The death of Philip Fitzroy in Jaws Three is pure nightmare fuel. But the dark horse in that race is the character of Marge in Jaws Two.
2: Well, it's just number one. Marge is just a sympathetic character. Um, every time, every when you see her, like you know, she'll take Sean. You can come on my boat and she's everybody's friend and you know the fact that you know she jumped in the water to save sean and and uh meets her demise in doing so she's easily a a fan favorite and i think that's the one that really quint obviously in 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 jaws uh who's the most horrific death to me but why is, is just right behind that because quint you you think it's funny i just watched a, a thing on youtube I can't remember the name of the actual show. Maybe it's the movies in bed, but it's two sisters in
1: their late twenties. <laughs> yeah. That would be the star of episode 32 Cassie from popcorn in bed. One of my most popular episodes.
2: Yeah. But they watch jaws and they're like, obviously when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. But when Quince, you know, being attacked and they're like, Oh my God, no, he can't, he can't die like this because he did this. He did this. He can't die by a shark. And I was like, Wow. Mm -hmm. You know, you think that later, but the first viewing, they were really emotionally involved in it. You know, the Marge death, it's funny because that is a uh, urban legend. And apparently it it started many years ago, but, and it's only in Ireland. Apparently uh, the Irish television station, I think it's RTE, they show a version with Marge inside the shark's mouth. What? Well, no, they don't. People think they see that. And I get into so many arguments on on Facebook when someone says, oh, I remember we saw it. And I was like, no, you didn't. And they, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. And I said, look, I talked to the director. He doesn't remember filming it. I talked to the two actors involved. They don't remember it happening. I said, you just think, I mean, that's how good a film it was. You imagine you see that happening. And it's just, um, yeah, it's, it's, I wish, I, you know, I wish that was a, a real scene, but, but it's funny, but it's only in Ireland. Everybody in Ireland, no, no other place in the world. And it was like, oh, yeah, they didn't tell. We didn't tell uh, so-and-so, and Joe Owls filmed it, uh, and, and you, know, stuck, you know, they stuck it in the print. And I was like, no, I talked to Joe. Joe and Joe didn't film it. But, yeah, but basically like the Mandela effect. People think they see yeah. something or hear something, yeah.
1: You mentioned you were watching the YouTube popcorn and bed reaction for Jaws. I occasionally get on there and watch other reaction videos to Jaws. And it's comforting that the younger generation enjoy it as well. But the thing that sticks out to me the most is that most of the people watching had no clue that the sinking of the Indianapolis was a real event. And that was another reason why it was so important to me to have an actual survivor on my show, to give testimony to what a horror show that whole ordeal was.
2: Right. um, I met uh, up in uh, Omaha, oh, at least a decade ago, uh, for not longer, I went up there, they did a, a, a special screening of Jaws and Carl was there. And um, But they had a gentleman named Clarence Hupka, who was a survivor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I sat behind him in the balcony and just watched him during that scene to understand, you know, that it is real. Because I, I didn't know about it when I saw the film. My understanding is that President Nixon declassified all the records in 1974. Uh, Howard Sackler heard about it, and he said, wow, this would be a great impetus for why Quint doesn't like sharks. But uh, Richard Dreyfuss tells a story that the movie opened on Friday, and uh, Monday morning, Peter Benchley's housekeeper didn't come to work. So uh, he calls her, you know, make sure she's feeling well. And she says, well, no, she goes, "Um, uh, I saw your movie this weekend. Uh, my son was on the Indianapolis, and I wow. just found out how, I just found out how he died. Wow! So, yeah, I think a lot of people, like I said, I had no idea that that was a
1: real event. So, another fun fan question, a fun question that Carl Gottlieb did not find as funny as the Legion of Jaws fans out there is: How is Larry Vaughn still the mayor of Amity after the events of the first film? <laughs> <laughs> By your chuckle, I can see you get the joke. After your involvement in writing this book, and obviously from being a fan, did you find that meme funny at all?
2: Oh, I, I do. I think I think it's great that people pay enough attention to the films. Yeah, uh, it, it's still a running gag. I remember the last Ghostbusters when they're talking to the to the mayor Andy Garcia, and Kristen Wiig says, "You need to do this. Please don't be like the mayor in Jaws. Please don't <laughs> be like the mayor in Jaws." And um, it's funny. Uh, David Hamilton, uh, Murray's son. Is a very good friend of mine. He'll share memes with me that people, you know, the people send him because it is. You, you wonder why is this guy, you know, either that small a town or or nobody just, nobody just wants a job. <laughs>
1: now this next fan question is an interesting one. What did you think of the novelization for Jaws 2? In my opinion, it's different.
2: I like it because it's based more on the original script that Dorothy and, and Howard Sackler wrote. Um, so it's a little more darker. Um, we learn that the shark is in fact a female, which is what Dorothy intended. We learn a little bit more about, uh, Larry Vaughn and his mafia buddies and, and, and everything else, but it's just, you know, once again, it was just, you know, it was just something that they, they not threw together, but, you know, universal had, had the book published. I think it was out a month, like maybe in May of 78. And it had gone to press long before that, so they never got a chance to use Carl's script or whatever Carl revisions he made, the Howard Sackler's script. But I like the story. Um, I I understand. I haven't read it, though I have a copy of it somewhere, that the Jaws 4, the Jaws of Revenge novel, uh, novelization is actually uh, very entertaining.
1: So you just released a new edition of the Jaws 2 book you wrote. What was the driving decision behind that?
2: Uh, Well, we did it. Lou and I worked on the book for four years. We put it out in 2015. It was very well received. But then people that I either couldn't get a hold of, either I couldn't find them or they weren't aware of the project, they were contacting me and they'd say, oh, gosh, I was this on Jaws 2. i got some great photos. i got some great stories. So I, I talked to my publisher and I said, look, you know, 2018 is coming up it's going to be the 40th anniversary, you know, what if I wrote more? You know, what if we did, you know, all these other interviews and I found all these other pictures I got a hold of? And um, he said, that's fine. And I told him, I said, but if we do, I want to do it in color. Uh-huh. So um, so there is a, a black and white version of the expanded version, uh, expanded edition. And then there's also, it's a limited run of 1,000 copies soft cover and hardback uh, book with everything in color. That's the one that I sold, uh, I'm surprised how many I sold at Sharkong. is it was more Jaws Jaws fans, you know, for Richard. But so we did, uh, came out, it was released on uh, June 16th, uh, 2018, the 40th anniversary of the day Jaws 2 was released. We had a book release party at the Fishing Museum down in Destin. And some of the local people that have worked on the film there. And when it finally came out, I said, you know, this is this is the way I imagined it mm-hmm. when we started working on it. So it's, you know, I, I wouldn't change anything in it. Um, someone, you know, someone said, what if what if John Williams called you and said he could talk to you now? It's like, well, it's too late. I would I would still talk to him and maybe do like a little pamphlet or something I could send out to people that bought the book, but. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't. I wouldn't print it a
1: third time. So, what is next for Michael Smith?
2: Uh, I am tentatively working on a book, but I haven't gotten everything finalized, so I, I, I don't want to mention it. I've still got my my website, MediaMikes dot com. We do a lot of you know interviews and stuff, uh, you know, film reviews, books, music, concert reviews. That's really it. I'm just kind of. I, I, I just turned sixty, and I've. I've. <laughs> Uh, I've made my mark in the world, and I'm sure there's there's more for me to do, but right now I just have a have a, have a clear plate, so I'm just going to enjoy it while I, while I have it.
1: As we begin to wind down this interview, minus the website you just mentioned, what would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online?
2: Uh, let's see. Well, we do uh, uh, we have a, a page on Facebook for Media Mics, but also uh, a page and a YouTube show called Back in the Day. Uh, it's myself and uh, Jay Smith, uh, no relation, um, and we look at uh, every every week. Every day we post something about uh, something happened that day in pop culture. Uh, every week we do a, about a half-hour show. Uh, we just recorded this week's show where we talk about Faulty Towers and Jaws because Jaws was still in theaters. And it was all August of 75 uh we also have a uh youtube and facebook show called let's talk jaws live uh every week uh jay and i talk jaws we have guests we've had carl Gottlieb bond we've had john hancock uh mm-hmm. tomorrow night we have uh tom dunlop speaking of uh there on youtube uh, we also have a page on facebook you can watch them either uh in either venue and um it's just really people have having fun and sharing, uh, discussing your favorite movie. And every now and then we kind of go off topic and, you know, we could be talking about Jaws one day and welcome back Cotter the next. So, it's just, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just, uh, it's really just a bunch of people sitting around talking, but friends having fun.
1: So I end my interviews with my favorite question. And the question is this, if the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you want to say to the people of Earth?
2: I'll be profound here and and, and be serious. Um and take care of each other. Um this is this is you know sure we're going to Mars and we're going to put people back on the moon but this is the only planet we have. This is the only the people around you are the only people you're probably going to know. You're not going to meet a Martian, you're not going to meet anybody from the moon. Um take care of each other. Be kind. Do something good. Do a good deed every day. Even if it's even if it's you know Oh, holding hold the door. You're going, you're going to go 7 somebody coming in, hold the door for him. Let's do something simple. Something simple Do something kind. That's all you got to do.
1: Mike, thanks again for taking the time to come on. I know it was a marathon session back and forth, but I am so glad we finally made this happen.
2: Oh, me too. Thank you. Glad happy to be here.
1: The book is Jaws 2, The Making of a Hollywood Sequel, available on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, or wherever books are sold. Mike, thanks again. And just like that, Duvall Nation, we come to the end of episode 78. I want to thank Mike again for being so gracious with his time. I will never, ever, ever say no to an opportunity to speak to someone about Jaws. And this was an absolutely fantastic interview. We still have so much more good stuff coming your way, as some of the more perceptive of you have realized... We have gone to a two-episode-a-week release schedule to keep up with the growing demand of record-to-release ratio. Some people say, you know what, Derek, why don't you just stop interviewing people? Well, folks, that's just not how we play it here at The Derek Duvall Show. So stay tuned as we are still kicking out incredible content. Have you had a chance to check out our store on TeePublic? We have everything from magnets, stickers, and mugs. Be sure to go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Look on the banner on the left that says merch. Click that. And you'll be taken to our store on T Public, and I want to thank T Public for being such great partners with us. On behalf of the entire team here at the Dark Deval Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening: be safe, be well, and don't swim where people are fishing. A predator is always paying attention. And when you stick a pinky toe in the ocean, you go about 16 steps down the food chain, folks. Just keep that in mind. Nusta, God bless, and see you next time. Planet Earth.
0: This has been a recording of The Derek
1: Duval Show,
0: and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, to explore past episodes and find links to purchase merchandise. Please subscribe to our social media channels on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Derek Duval Show.